We are in Jeremiah chapter 2, so you'll want to turn to Jeremiah. It's a very long chapter, so I'm going to read it as we go through it today. I'm not going to read the whole thing uh, right now. Um, It's 37 very long verses. So we're going to open with a word of prayer and uh, dive in. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it. We need to know that everything that we need for faith and practice comes from the mouth of the Lord. We need to know when your word's open before us, it's the word of the Lord. Thank you that Jeremiah is a prophetic book that convicts us of sin, leads us to repent, builds our faith, gives us hope, because it's built on the word of the Lord, which comes to Jeremiah and through him to us. So help us this morning to hear it, understand it, believe it, and obey it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. There is a big event coming up on October 20th. And no, I'm not talking about the kids stuff swap the women's ministry is doing, but that's a great event. I hope you'll take part in it. And that is a kids stuff swap, not a kids swap. So that doesn't disappoint anyone. Um, But the event I'm talking about is Bridge Day. And Bridge Day is West Virginia's largest single-day festival. And it's one of the largest extreme sports events in the world. It's held annually on the third Saturday in October at the New River Gorge Bridge in Fayette County, West Virginia. And that's the New River Gorge Bridge, which is one of the highest vehicular bridges in the world, currently the third highest in the United States. It gives you an idea. The clouds are under the bridge. So Bridge Day is a great event. It starts with a 5K race back and forth across the bridge. You have Taste of Bridge Day the night before with all the local restaurants taking part. There's the Bridge Jam Music Festival going on, and it all ends with the Bridge Day Chili Cook-Off. So it sounds like an awesome time. But the highlight of Bridge Day is all the crazy people. See, Bridge Day is the only day each year that thousands of spectators can walk across the bridge and watch as serious base jumpers get their chance to fly 876 feet into the gorge below. So, 876 feet is like the height of the Washington Monument with two Statue of Liberty stacked on top of it. So, and jumpers come once a year to jump off. Now, base jumping is parachuting or wingsuit flying from a fixed structure or cliff. BASE is actually an acronym. It stands for the four categories of fixed objects from which one can jump. Building, antenna, span, like a bridge, uh, and earth, which is usually a cliff. So you can go there and you can jump off the bridge. So there's also repellers. You can just barely see them right above the flags who ascend and descend from the catwalk under the bridge. I don't know if you've ever done any repelling. I've done a little bit. Probably the longest I've gone, maybe 150, 200 feet. 
876 feet. That's a long way down. You don't want to let go. So Bridge State's going to get 400-plus jumpers and 300-plus repellers, along with more than 100,000 spectators. But there's good news. If you're not sure you can do this, if you could step off the bridge, they'll help you with a catapult. <laughs> so you can get on the catapult and, you know, pull, there goes Frank. You know, that's often. So you can do that. Now, I know there's a few of you here not into heights, all that. You're not sure if you can even get out of the car. They can help you with that, too. So that is the GMC truck bungee jumping event. You're in the car. And I imagine when that gets to the bottom, you're like bouncing around like a ping pong ball. You know? The, uh, so yeah, truck bungee jumping. That's an extreme sport. So that's bridge day. Now imagine you and I are going to this event. It's an awesome event. So we decide to go down there. We're going to Bridge Day, and we've signed up to jump. And this is going to be so cool. So we walk out to the middle of this 3,000-foot bridge, and we get ready to go. And I look over and realize, you don't have a parachute. So I'm yelling, hey, where's your chute? I see you step over the railing, and you prepare to step off. And you turn around and just smile at me and say, no worries, man. You see, I'm not the gravity type. <laughs> How's that going to work out for you? Not so well. Because physics tells us you reach terminal velocity at 120 miles an hour. And you reach 120 miles an hour in eight seconds. You see, gravity is not a lifestyle choice. Gravity is not a belief system. Your views on gravity have no effect on gravity. Your belief that you can defy gravity also has no effect on gravity. Gravity is reality. And the ground is very hard. The Old Testament prophets have no trouble understanding reality. Starting with Moses, they all taught that God is a transcendent Reality. He's far above us and way beyond our ability to fully understand. But he's also an imminent reality, very close to us through his spirit. So skydivers tell us that's a very transcendent feeling. You're jumping through the air. You feel far above everything. Um, but the ground, the landing is imminent. You know the ground comes up very fast and it's very hard. So Moses describes God as a consuming fire. And like gravity, a consuming fire is hard to ignore. Whether you believe it or not, it's a reality. And Moses teaches us, Deuteronomy 4, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. In Deuteronomy 5, he says, now therefore, why should we die? This is the people speaking. For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. So what he wants you to understand, it's not just that there's a God who exists, but he is the one defining reality. And this hasn't changed. Hebrews 12 speaks of the new covenant. It actually concludes by quoting Deuteronomy 
for our God is a consuming fire. When Moses says this, he's not being arbitrary. It's not a threat. It's just stating the facts. It's reality. This awesome God is real. He is the creator, and therefore this is how the world is. If you line up yourself with this God, with this God, then reality's on your side. And if you set yourself against him, then reality's working against you. And the scriptures teach us that God is the ultimate reality. The God who is a consuming fire, whose word, Jeremiah says, is like a hammer, remains unaffected by our views about him. Your views about God don't change God. Whether or not you and I believe in the God of the Bible makes no difference to reality. Makes an eternity of difference to us. <coughs> Someone can tell you, no worries, man. You see, I'm not the religious type. <coughs> me. Has no effect on God and his word. Doesn't change God one iota. Doesn't change reality. So what does all this have to do with Jeremiah? Well, God's people have fallen headlong into all sorts of gross sin. They've turned away from God. They've embraced all manner of pagan idolatry. God is accusing them of gross spiritual adultery. Jeremiah is pleading with them to live in line with how the world is. The creator God's a consuming fire. And the only way to live in line with reality, to live in line with this very real God, which is what the gospel offers, and Jeremiah is telling them, in no uncertain terms, you don't change how you live, God's judgment is coming. And these people are acting like it's bridge day. And they're standing on the edge and they're going, no worries, man, you see, I'm not the judgment type has no effect on God and his word, doesn't change God one iota, doesn't change the promised judgment, doesn't change reality. And that's the background for today's passage. See, Jeremiah 2 presents an instance of looking at Israel's breaking of the covenant with God. Reflects on a sad history in the land under the covenant. Eventually, we'll get to Jeremiah 31, and it portrays Israel's obedience to the covenant as it was intended from the start. And Jeremiah 31 will offer us some of the greatest hope in the book. But Jeremiah 2 offers some of its harshest condemnation. That condemnation starts at the very beginning with disappointment with God's people. Verses 1 to 3, disappointment with God's people. It begins, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. So that's our first three verses there. The whole chapter is given to us in the context, it's presented in the context 
of a failing marriage. So essentially, we start with a honeymoon, and we see a severe case of spiritual adultery, given in somewhat crude terms. I'm not going to go through all the crude terms today, but they're there. And then the grounds for divorce are laid out. And as God remembers how this marriage started, it's hard not to hear the disappointment in his voice. God remembers what the honeymoon was like. It almost sounds like he's paging through the photos in a wedding album. He looks back on the early days of the marriage and there's an ache in his heart. He can remember how his bride adored him when they were first married. Verse 2, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. Once Israel loved God like a newlywed, and Jeremiah pictures a devoted bride. Actually, the word devotion is not strong enough. God remembers the covenant faithfulness of Israel. It's a word for unbroken promises, unshakable loyalty, unceasing devotion, unfailing loving kindness. It's a perfect word to describe marriage because marriage is a covenant relationship. It's more than a legal contract. It's a steadfast love commitment of faithfulness and adoration. And sometimes Christians get the idea that we're faithful to God's covenant simply because we obey God's law. And that's because we're legalists at heart. But God never intended our relationship with him to be mere obedience, just simply an act of the will. He wants our hearts as well as our wills. And the Old Testament in particular teaches us that redemption is a romance. Redemption is a romance. The children of Israel gave their hearts to God when they first got married. They reveled in the romance of redemption like a new bride Israel loved her divine husband. The proof of her love was that she followed God wherever he led. End of verse 2 says, even into the wilderness in a land not sown, not planted, it was desert. She's young and in love and she just wanted to be close to her husband Barren wilderness is not much of a bridal suite, but that didn't matter. Israel followed God out of Egypt through the wilderness and into the promised land. And if Israel is a loving wife, God was a faithful husband. He didn't fail to keep any of the wedding vows. God has a passion for his bride, verse 3. Israel's holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. He took her to love and to cherish he treated her with honor and respect, setting her apart as holy. Israel is the first fruits of God's harvest among all the nations of the world. She's God's best and most valuable possession, the apple of his eye dedicated to him alone. And God also protected his bride. He wouldn't let anyone else harm her. End of verse 3, all who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. If anyone threatened Israel, God treated it as an attack on his own person. Remember what happened to the Egyptians? Remember what happened to the Philistines? God repeatedly saved his wife and kept her safe. And with such great love and devotion, you can understand how disappointed God was in his people. And so he begins to question the disloyalty of his people, the disloyalty of his people, starting in verse 4. The disloyalty. Uh, 
It says, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? Those who handle the law do not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. So how could all this be happening? I mean, if you were there for the wedding, you never would have believed it would end so badly. The wedding was so beautiful. The honeymoon was wonderful. The bride was devoted. The husband was faithful. Where did it all go wrong? But now God's on the witness stand, and he's asking the same questions. And, it's, and all that is because God didn't leave his people. They dumped him. <coughs> God's people are the ones who walked out. They used to love him, but it's all over now. And it's worth remembering, whenever God seems distant, verse 6, they did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt? As the old saying goes, when God doesn't seem as close as he once was, who moved? Why would anyone ever move away from God? It makes no sense. Why would a bride lead a perfect, leave a perfect husband? Why would she abandon a spouse who fulfilled all his vows? There's no excuse. There's no explanation. This is separation without provocation. And God is the one who's wronged. He's the plaintiff here. And this is his accusation, verse 5. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? So there's legitimate grounds for a divorce, adultery, in this case, spiritual adultery. God's people are having affairs with worthless idols. The strength of this word worthless is the same word used in Ecclesiastes for vanity. It means mist or vapor. Idolaters are grasping at thin air. They worship nothing at all. And the marriage between God and his people is dying of neglect. God's people no longer seek after him. They no longer recount his mighty acts of salvation. They forget the love that saved them. They're sort of suffering from this self-induced spiritual amnesia. And it's, I think, a reminder to us to thank God for our salvation, to recount the saving acts of God in history, to remember what God's done in our lives. The road to spiritual adultery begins when you stop rejoicing in the love of God. Few Christians plan to fall into grievous sin. Normally, it's only after uh, falling that they realize they've drifted so far away from God. That's why the book of Hebrews warns us in uh, Hebrews 2, therefore we must pay closer, much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. 
For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And so you see, there's this picture. They've drifted away. They've neglected their salvation. And Jeremiah places the blame for Judah's marital difficulties squarely on the shoulders of her spiritual leaders. Verse 8. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. This verse ought to keep pastors and elders awake at night. Those who handle the law did not know me. A holy calling does not make a holy man. The priests of Jeremiah's day are handling the scriptures and studying the Bible and teaching God's word. But they didn't know God. Their ministry was a dead ritual rather than a living relationship. And so we see the prophets, priests, and kings aren't part of the solution. They're part of the problem. We'll see later in verse 36 or 26, it says, As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets. That's everybody. Their leaders got caught with their hands in the cookie jar. They're sinning. They're sleeping around with idols. So there's disappointment. And then he shows that there's this disloyalty. But when you're sleeping around with idols, there's the disgrace of forsaking God. The disgrace of forsaking God. Verse 19. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and see. Send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is Israel a slave? Is he a homeborn servant? Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Tapahanes have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? What do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you. Your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. <clears throat> Jeremiah is not describing a divorce for irreconcilable differences. 
This is not a no-fault divorce. God has legitimate grounds for ending the marriage. And the rest of the chapter gives evidence of the infidelity of God's people. It's almost like a judicial slideshow. As part of his prosecution, God introduces image after image of spiritual adultery. He lays out his case with the logic of a lawyer proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that his people have forsaken their first love. What's it like when God's people leave their husband? It's like a nation changing its gods, verse 10 and 11. Verse 11, has a nation changed its God? God asks, has there ever been such a thing? Of course not. Cyprus is far to the west. Kadar is a tribe far in the east. He's saying travel from east to west. No nation's ever changed its gods. Shoes, hairstyle, food, but not gods. Even the pagans are loyal to their gods. They cart them around wherever they go. <coughs> Did the Canaanites ever abandon Baal? Nope. Did the Babylonians or Egyptians ever forsake their gods? Nope. And yet, end of verse 11, my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. The pagans never abandon their dead gods, but God's people abandon the living God. And the members of the jury should be appalled at what they hear, so much so they should be shocked, be utterly desolate. What is it like? When God's people walk away from God, it's like leaving a spring of living water, verses 12 and 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So you imagine you're living in a desert. It's always dry. The thing you always need and can never find is water. Then you find a desert spring that continuously bubbles up fresh water. Would you ever leave that never-ending supply of fresh water behind? No, nobody would abandon a desert spring. But now imagine leaving the spring behind and digging a cistern, which looks like a well. A well brings up water from below. A, a cistern tries to catch rainwater. And so you dig a cistern to catch the rainwater... But if you went to such trouble, would you leave cracks in it? Would you not seal it? And yet God testifies, my people have hewed out broken cisterns that can hold no water. I mean, if leaving a spring is dumb, building a broken cistern is dumber. What Jerusalem did makes even less sense. All the other things God's telling them they're worried about being squashed by the surrounding superpowers. They're afraid of being plundered. So just to be safe, they proposition their neighbors. They substitute political alliances for their covenant with God. Verse 18. What do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Remember, they've left the fountain of living waters. So now they're going to drink the waters of the Nile. Make an alliance with Egypt. What do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Okay, so you can go, you know, sort of southwest or northeast. But these nations are not really allies. Actually, they're enemies. And in the end, all these temporary alliances fail. 
and Israel is going to be disappointed by all their so-called partners. Alliances with Egypt and Assyria are like broken cisterns. They can't hold water the way God can. Worse still, their water has a bitter aftertaste compared to the sweet living water from God's wellspring. Jesus uses all this same imagery, if you remember, at the woman at the well. So it's partly a lesson about the coming Messiah. No water can compare with the living water that God pours out. And so when the Samaritan woman questions Jesus at the well, he answers her, John 4. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He's directly referring back to God's people. But his people have now forsaken him. They've forgotten how God provided living water like streams in the desert. And in forsaking God, they disgrace themselves. And disgrace is followed by delusion. Disappointment, disloyalty, disgrace, delusion. And it's the delusion of denying sin, starting at verse 20. And this is a long passage. It says, for long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. So on every high hill and under every green tree you bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say... I am not unclean. I have not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. <clears throat> know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat, sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said it is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. They have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of trouble, they say, arise and save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. Why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain have I struck your children. They took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. And you, O generation, behold the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Why then do my people say, we are free, we will come no more to you? Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. How well you direct your course to seek love, so that even to wicked women you have taught your ways. Also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. You did not find them breaking in. Yet in spite of all these things, you say, I am innocent. Surely his anger is turned away from me. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying I have not sinned. 
how much you go about changing your way. You shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. From it too you will come away with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust and you will not prosper by them. Those are harsh words. God's people leaving their husband is like a wild animal breaking free from its yoke. Verse 20. Jerusalem's like a wild ox that smashed its yoke against the barn and run off into the fields. And on their way into the wilderness, they yell over their shoulders, we will not serve you. The Old Testament commentator Derek Kidner explains that Israel is depicted as a restless wife to whom the bonds and burdens of true love were slavery and the lure of the forbidden irresistible. (coughs) Making clear, God's people are guilty of adultery. They're shacking up with gods they hardly knew. Very likely, Jeremiah is referring to Baal worship, which included ritual prostitution on hilltop shrines. From verse 20 to 26, he gives us seven illustrations that show the collapse of Israel's loyalty and the extent of her delusion. I'm just going to mention these quickly. We're not going to go through them in great detail. The Hebrew is far more graphic and far more crude than the English. I think the translators... I don't know, maybe they thought we couldn't handle it or something. But he says it compares Israel to an ox that breaks its yoke, verse 20, an unfaithful wife who's played a harlot, verse 20, a noble vine that became a generate plant, verse 21, someone unable to cleanse his iniquity even with lye or soap, verse 22, a wild camel wandering with no direction, verse 23, a female donkey in heat wildly pursuing a mate, verse 24, and a thief caught in a shame, verse 26. All of that is scandalous, as it always is when religious people turn away from the Lord. Worshiping other gods is not just scandalous, it's futile. As Israel is going to discover on her day of judgment, again, starting at verse 26, the house of Israel shall be shamed. Who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone you gave me birth, for they have turned their back to me and not their face. It's hard to believe God's people exchange the glory of God's presence for idols made of wood or stone. But furthermore, they're so confused that they are spiritually cross-dressing their idols. Verse 27, who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone you gave me birth. That is, they call the feminine goddess, represented by the tree, father, and tell the masculine god, represented by the stone, that he gave them birth. And by partner swapping, Israel is bartered away, the living God. This is a religious crime without precedent in the ancient world. This is the kind of thing that even the pagans would look and say, whoa, those people are nuts. And like most guilty parties, Jerusalem tries to defend herself. Throughout Jeremiah 2, we get these uh, sayings mounting a defense. Protests her innocence. Verse 23, how can you say, I am not unclean. I have not gone after the Baals. I mean, she's just lying. But that's exposed in cross-examination. She's forced to admit she loves foreign gods. Verse 25. I have loved foreigners, and after them, I will go. 
Another claim of innocence follows. Verse 35. In spite of all these things you say, I am innocent. Surely his anger is turned away from me. God says, behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying I have not sinned. God's people are in denial. We're still they're playing the blame game uh, as often happens when marriages start to fall apart. Each spouse refuses to take responsibility for their own actions. But in this case, it's the accused of people of Israel who've been doing all the cheating. But she has the audacity to bring charges, to argue with him. Verse 29, why do you contend with me? You all have transgressed against me, declares the Lord. And so in the end, Judah's plea of innocence leads to her condemnation. God is not only the spurned husband and the prosecuting attorney, he's also the righteous judge. And he weighs all the evidence and renders the verdict guilty as charged. And therein lies the good news. It's only because God is the aggrieved party and the prosecuting attorney and the righteous judge can we have any hope for our bouts of spiritual adultery and idolatry. And there's a little small clue in the passage about this good news. It's a verse we skipped over. Verse 32. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Jeremiah takes us back to a wedding, back to a redeemer, back to a redemption. We go back to where it started. One of the great privileges of being a minister of the gospel is that I get to perform weddings. And over the last 27 years, I've gotten to do quite a few. And one of the little things that I do at a wedding is right when the bride starts down the aisle, I whisper something to the groom. And the last wedding I performed uh, was for my son Sam and his wife Jill in June. And I didn't know the whole thing was captured on video. And I had no idea. That exact moment, and I usually get away with this, course, when the bride hits the aisle, everybody's turned and looks at her. But at that exact moment, we're being filled. Right when Jill came down the aisle, I leaned over and I said, Sam, this is the only time you're ever going to see this sight. So soak it in. And I have said that to some of you here. Because it's at that moment when the bride first appears and she is so stunningly beautiful. For most grooms, it just takes their breath away. And Jeremiah asked, does a bride forget her ornaments, her attire, her beautiful dress, to put it in modern terms? Brides, what's the function of your wedding dress? On your wedding day, you want to be perfect. The fact of the matter is you're not perfect. On the wedding day, you want to be just the right size, but you're not the right size. On the wedding day, you want to be flawless, but you're not flawless. But there's something about wedding ornaments and dresses and jewelry and makeup that there has never been an imperfect bride. That's the reason why the dress and the makeup and the jewelry are all so important. I mean, have you ever seen a bride come down the aisle and suddenly stop and go, oh my gosh, I forgot to put on my makeup. I forgot to wear my earrings. They don't do that. 
They don't forget things like that. Why? Because a bride does a phenomenal amount of work to be as absolutely beautiful as she can possibly be. By the way, I have never seen a bride who failed. Never, ever. There are all sorts of ways to hide the parts of you that are not that attractive and all sorts of ways to highlight the parts of you that are. And you come down looking like a vision. And everyone in the whole place is stunned. When the bride appears, there's always, without fail, a collective gasp because she's so beautiful. Why do you work so hard for that to happen? Yes, you're thinking about your family and all your friends and guests and everybody, but basically you're thinking about him. You're coming down to him. And you want him to say, you are so beautiful. I love you so much. All the barriers come down. Here's Jeremiah, and God is saying, you know how to make yourself acceptable physically, but you don't know how to do it spiritually. You make yourself beautiful on the outside, but you're not beautiful on the inside. Why are you working so hard? Why are you going after these idols? Why are you trying so hard to be beautiful? Why are you trying so hard to be successful? Why are you trying so hard for approval? You're trying to cover uh, the sense of inadequacy that we all have. You're trying to get someone to say, I love you, I accept you. Don't you understand? I will be your God. I will be your ornament. I will be your righteousness. I will be your acceptability. I will do it. How does Jesus Christ make you what you've been trying to make yourself by chasing idols and false gods? How does he do it? He gave himself. Every other God despises you and seeks your life, but this God doesn't seek your life. He gave his life. This is a God who on the cross was stripped so you could be clothed. He was naked in the dark so you could be clothed in the light. He was disfigured so you could be beautiful. He was cast out so the Father could welcome you in. When we believe in him, all his great work on the cross becomes ours. His righteousness becomes ours. That's what the Bible teaches. Does a bride forget her ornaments? Does a bride forget her beauty? You've forgotten me, and I can be your beauty. Here you are running around trying to look great to get your various lover gods, to get others around you to say, well done. You're trying to clothe yourself with righteousness. You can never do it, but I can do it. And I alone can do it. Do you see what he's saying? Would a bride forget her wedding dress? But you have forgotten me. When you look at anything else and say, I must have you, you're beginning to forget such a great salvation. When you say that, you've either forgotten or have never heard what Jesus did on the cross for you. He was stripped naked so you could be clothed. He's your jewelry. He is that which makes you beautiful. There's no other religion that claims to have a God like this. Every other God and every other religion says, do this and you will live, fail and you will die. We have a God that says, fail and I will die for you. Other religions say, our God is too great to have died. Our religion says, our God was so great that he died for us. Every other God seeks your life. This God gave his life for you. It's breathtaking. It's God's grace for the ungracious, his faithfulness to the unfaithful. Even when God's love goes unanswered, he doesn't cease to love. 
And even though his marriage with his people is violated, he never breaks covenant with his beloved. If you've never entered into a love relationship with God, he is courting you at this very moment. He invites you to enter into a love that will never let you go. He calls you to leave behind the sins that you carry here, there, and everywhere out in the spiritual wilderness. He invites you to repent and believe and come home in order to fall in love with Jesus. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Thank you, Father, as we look at this passage for the profound analysis of our souls that it gives us and the restoration it offers us. Thank you that it's possible for us to have our hearts melted by the knowledge of your love for us, to have our hearts maintained by the remembrance of your grace for us, and most of all, to have our hearts changed by the knowledge of what your Son has done for us, but also what your Son is for us. Father, give us what you want to give us. Give us Jesus. Lord, these things are deep. They're wonderful. Some of us have never heard this. Some people here today have not heard this understanding of Christianity. Father, we pray for those who have never heard that you would, that this would just be the beginning, the first step of a journey, and it would end in your arms. And for those of us who've heard it many times, we pray that through your spirit it would become active in our lives in a way it's never been before. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for being overwhelmed by our fears. Work in each of us this year as we live with the prophet Jeremiah, as we see what he sees and hears what he hears. Teach us to respond with greater faith and renewed confidence in your word and ever-increasing trust in your great and precious promises. And through those things, draw us closer to your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Receive God's benediction from Ephesians 5. You've heard these words before, probably at many weddings. Hopefully they'll mean more to you now. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. God bless you. We'll see you next week.